The 1970s, it was a decade of change. The Vietnam War, the rumble in the jungle, Champion. There'll never be one like me. The Watergate scandal. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. The oil crisis, military coups across the world, and the advent of disco. And on the dance floors of Miami and Los Angeles to Rome and London, a new party drug originating in the jungles of South America was sweeping through the nightclubs. Cocaine. Shootout occurred at about 2.30 this afternoon when two or more Latin males entered the Crown Liquor Store here on the west end of the Dadeland Mall. They were followed by two or three other Latin males, and then the shooting began. By the end of the decade, there was a drug-related shooting in broad daylight at Dadeland Mall in Kendall, Florida, and this thrust in the era of the cocaine cowboys. Over the preceding decades, hundreds of thousands have died as rival cartels in Colombia and then Mexico fought for supremacy over the cocaine trade, and it's estimated to be worth hundreds of billions of dollars a year. You're listening to The Impact, Coronavirus and Organized Crime from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. For 12 weeks, this special edition weekly podcast is looking at how the ongoing coronavirus is impacting on organized crime around the world and how the illicit economy may affect our ability to respond to the virus. This is part one of Cocaine, Colombia to Mexico. Let's start by looking at Colombia, where so much of the cocaine begins its journey. During the 1980s and 90s, Colombia in South America became the cocaine-producing capital of the world, creating a boom for the drug in the United States and Europe. This period saw the rise of hugely powerful and violent organized criminal networks, and names that have become infamous for drug trafficking. Pablo Escobar, Gustavo Gaviria, Carlos Leda, and the Medellin Cartel. Then there was Gilberto and Miguel Orihuela and the Cali Cartel. By the mid-90s, both cartels had been dismantled, with all of the above either dead or in jail in the United States. So how has Colombia changed since the heyday of the narco-traffickers? Toby Muse is a foreign correspondent and author of the new book Kilos, Life and Death Inside the Secret World of the Cocaine Cartels, which is a deep dive into the cocaine industry in Colombia, where Toby meets drug traffickers, contract killers, and the police who are trying to take these cocaine organizations down. Well, I mean, there's kind of two trends. So uh, let's just take Pablo Escobar, that everyone knows Pablo Escobar and has a kind of fair idea. The series Narcos has told it the story of his life. So you have the Medellin cartel at that moment, Pablo Escobar, the absolute kind of king of cocaine. And he's running the Medellin cartel. But you have Colombia also being one of the most violent countries on the planet. Now, fast forward three decades, the violence has gone down dramatically. There's just, it's night and day. So Medellin is now a tourist hotspot. It was once one of the most violent cities on the planet. Now it's this welcoming to tourists. So the cocaine has kind of rescinded from being a central part of the country that the focus every day, as it was 30 years ago. At the same time, there's more cocaine than 
ever before. Colombia is producing more cocaine than the world has ever seen. What's happening is, is that the cartels have kind of morphed. The drug traffickers have changed. We now have a new style drug trafficker that's called an invisible. That's what they're called. These are men and women, almost always men, but these are men who opt to live for a lower profile. They don't want their face on the front page like in the times of Pablo Escobar. In the times of Pablo Escobar, these drug traffickers were household names, but they also now drug traffickers understand if your face is on the front page of a newspaper, the countdown has begun on you being captured on your demise. You'll either be killed in a police operation or by your rivals. So again, they're looking to operate in the shadows and they hope to make a lot more money and stay in the cocaine game a lot longer. So that's where we are. So the cartels have kind of lost that prominence they once had. We have one old style trafficker in Colombia now, a man named Otoniel, who runs the Gulf clan cartel. And what we understand his life is that he's hiding in the jungles of northwestern Colombia, one of the rainiest zones on the planet. And we understand his life is moving from wooden shack to wooden shack every day on the back of a donkey as he tries to outrun the Colombian authorities who were on his heels. You've reported and studied the production and journey of cocaine from Colombia to the United States in your new book. Kilo's life and death inside the secret world of the cocaine cartels. Why did the Colombian cartels relinquish their preeminent position within the cocaine trade to the Mexican cartels? So essentially, if you look at the whole chain of cocaine, starting from a bush of coca all the way through to the end point of being sold in a US city in a one gram packet, because let's remember this whole business relies on the demand from the wealthiest countries on the planet and the largest market for cocaine on the planet is the United States. But if you look at that whole chain, the hardest part for the Colombian traffickers has always been near the end of that chain to get it into the United States. That's always was the hardest part. But at some point during the 80s, you had the Colombian cartels controlled that whole entire chain from production to selling it to the consumers. But they found that they were losing shipments in that last hurdle, trying to get it physically into the United States. So what did they do? They took a kind of very corporate-like decision. They decided to start working with the Mexicans. That would lower the price for them, but it would guarantee a steadier supply. So they took a hit. Roughly, these figures hold. A kilo of cocaine in New York is $40,000. In Miami, it's $25,000. In Mexico, it's $10,000 but you have a steadier supply. So the Colombian cartels, it was a logical decision for them to do because no one is better at smuggling into the US than these Mexican cartels. They've, there's generations of contraband smuggling over that border. So the Colombian cartels allied themselves with the Mexican cartels and the Colombians really took a step out of dealing directly into the US market, happily just handing it over to the Mexican cartels. And what impact is the COVID crisis having on the cocaine trade in Colombia? The impact of the COVID crisis on the cocaine trade, I think, is having a severe impact because Colombia is under a pretty serious lockdown. And remember, cocaine thrives by hiding in the legitimate economy, mostly. Not always. And there's an important, interesting exception to that, which I'll get to, the cocaine corridor of the Eastern Pacific. But much of cocaine trafficking relies on the grooves of legal civilization. So when you have a shocking, screeching halt to much of legal commerce then cocaine has less places to hide. 
So when you're seeing a massive reduction in flights or ships leaving Colombia with legal produce, cocaine doesn't have those places anymore to hide. You also have problems with production because, again, the quarantine is pretty serious. So if you're traveling on a road, you're much more out in the open at this point. So I think it's taking a temporary hit in Colombia, the cocaine trade. But again, it, nothing structurally is changing. As soon as the legal civilization, legal commerce opens up again, cocaine will once again be hiding out there. I did say that there is the exception, which are all of the boats that leave from the Pacific coast. This is the most important cocaine corridor on the planet, which is the Eastern Pacific Ocean. So we're talking about boats that leave from Colombian and the Ecuadorian coast, travel all through the underbelly of Central America and aim to get to Mexico. Or in particular, there is this spot of the Mexican-Guatemalan border to hand the cocaine over to the Mexican cartels. But again, they rely on there being many other fishing boats out there in the ocean in order for the cocaine boat not to attract attention. So if there's a massive reduction in those fishing boats out in the Eastern Pacific, the cocaine moving boat stands out a lot more. So I do think cocaine is taking a temporary hit. But again, once everything opens up again, cocaine will come roaring back. Throughout this series of podcasts, we've heard how criminal organizations are no longer monolithic. They've diversified into multiple illicit markets. Have we seen the same thing in Colombia with the cartels there? Absolutely. The old style drug trafficker who's only involved in cocaine, that's a minority at this point. They do still exist. But I mean, even if you look at the cartels, the oldest cartel existing in Colombia is one called the Office of Envigado. This was created by Pablo Escobar. It was the armed wing of the Medellin cartel. All these cartels by the end, you can always divide them into two wings. You have the business side, which is in charge of the roots, understanding who the contacts in Mexico, overseeing the whole production. But all of that needs to be defended by the armed wing. These are the killers for hire, the sicarios, as they're called. There's always someone who oversees that. And when these cartels have internal wars, it's always that the person who runs the army of killers is the one who can take over. So the office of Envigado started off as the the killing wing of the Medellin cartel. And it survived. It's the only cartel that survived since that time of Pablo Escobar. That's still around and it's still involved in cocaine trafficking. But even that is involved, uh, the office of Envigado is involved in extortion in the city of Medellin. It's involved in prostitution, street level drug dealing. So these criminal organizations will make a profit wherever they see they can. Given the disruption that COVID has caused. Have we seen any cocaine seizures by law enforcement? Seizures in Colombia are absolutely daily. I mean, it just, it doesn't end. I mean, I don't want to give the impression that it's just ground to a halt because it never ends. There's too many people dependent upon this business. So I think drug seizures across the country are constant. I mean, the country is producing, like, I think it's around a thousand tons of cocaine. Again, I think that because of this massive reduction in legal commerce and the strict lockdown, I think the people trying to transport the drugs are a lot more out in the open. And I think that's paying off in other ways as well. I think you're seeing a massive reduction in homicides. Just a lot of crime is on the down temporarily. You said that the Colombian cartels will take a hit during this COVID crisis, but do you think this financial hit will make them further diversify and actually make them stronger? After really reporting on cocaine for so long, I've come to the conclusion that cocaine is almost like 
It's like seeing an organism, an almost like a science fiction movie. It's this alien organism that is just constantly evolving and mutating and getting stronger in front of our eyes. Every time the police learn about one way, every time the police and the authorities strike against the cocaine industry, it adapts. It takes that blow. It learns from it. It gets stronger. So I think that's what you're constantly seeing. I think it's always looking to get more efficient. I do think it will come out on the other side. Like all of these times in cocaine's history, it comes out stronger. That's been the process over the last 20 years, going from when the US and the Columbia came together for this massive multi-billion dollar plan called Plan Columbia, which was trying to take down cocaine militarily. And this was a plan launched under the presidency of Bill Clinton, embraced by George W. Bush. And it was billions and billions of dollars the US was going to send to destroy cocaine. And the plan was that within five years, they would cut coca crops by half. With 20 years later, there's now more coca and cocaine than ever. And the Colombian government has announced a new plan. By 2023, it wants to cut coca crops by half. You know, it's just the drug war never really moves forward or backward. It just goes endlessly in circles. That was Toby Muse, foreign correspondent and author of the new book, Kilos, Life and Death Inside the Secret World of the Cocaine Cartels. In the mid-80s, the Colombian cartels favoured the Caribbean transit route. During this period, over 75% of cocaine seized between South America and the United States was taken in the Caribbean. Very little was seized through Central America. But just a couple of decades later, everything's changed. 80% of seized cocaine was in Central America compared to just 10% in the Caribbean. So what is the role of Central America in the cocaine trade and why was it chosen by the Mexican cartels? Guillermo Vasquez is a senior analyst at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Central American countries are transit points from cocaine produced in South America, Colombia and Peru, Bolivia, up north to Mexico and its final destination to United States. In Guatemala and Honduras are have become prominent players recently mainly because of two reasons. One is that Mexican criminal organizations such as Cartel de Sinaloa, Golfo, Zetas, began to have presence in, in Guatemala specifically because it was easier for them to create another hub up north. This has created a lot of corruption and violence, of course, but they have succeeded. Recently in Guatemala, it's been discovered that the some production has been successful so this could be a game changer for the cocaine trade throughout the region because during the third trimester of 2019, local authorities in the municipality of Livingston discovered a lab in which cocaine was being produced. A similar thing happened in Honduras where recently during the first trimester of 2020, another successful attempt to produce cocaine was discovered by Honduran authorities. These two countries becoming or potentially becoming producers of cocaine might be a game changer in the forthcoming months and years. But it's too early to say what kind of production capability they will have as it's only there's one attempt in each country 
of them being able to produce cocaine, which, as we all know, it's not an easy task, but is the, in a way, the holy grail of many criminal organizations that traffic this drug. That was Guillermo Vasquez, a senior analyst here at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Mexico has a long history of drug trafficking. In the early 20th century, Chinese Mexican immigrants brought opium poppies from China and planted it in Mexico. These drugs were then smuggled over the border into California where the first customers were Chinese Americans. Fast forward to the 80s, which saw the rise of Felix Gallardo and the Guadalajara cartel, becoming the main cocaine distributors in Mexico. But by the mid-90s, the power of the Colombian cartels was on the wane. And as we've heard, the Mexican cartel stepped into a more prominent position in the cocaine trade. After the Guadalajara cartel disintegrated and splintered, we saw the rise of the Sinaloa cartel and Joaquim El Chapo Guzman, the Gulf cartel, the Ariano Felix brothers and the Tijuana cartel. From 2006, it was these groups, along with others like Los Zetas and Jalisco New Generation cartel, who continued to conduct an extremely bloody war over territory, drug trafficking routes and other illicit activities. We've seen some grisly sights, such as mass decapitations and mutilations, bodies hung from bridges or dissolved in acid. The Mexican drug war has cost the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. Many of those killed were not even involved in illicit activities, just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And this isn't slowing down. Reports from the end of April showed the number of homicides in March 2020 climbed to 3,000 despite coronavirus restrictions. So why is Mexico so violent at the moment? Yoan Grillo is a journalist who has spent two decades studying and reporting on organized crime in Latin America. He's the author of El Narco, Inside Mexico's Criminal Insurgency and Gangster Warlords, Drug Dollars, Killing Fields and the New Politics of Latin America. So in some other Latin American countries, you've seen murders go down because people are not on the streets. So it's just like, you know, harder to kill people because people are locked in their houses. People are, um, you know, they're not in nightclubs. They're not in bars. You'd expect kind of murders to go down. Didn't happen in Mexico in March. It happened a little bit in April. But a lot of cartels are still fighting and they're still fighting armed conflicts in parts of the country. So you've got like areas of the country where you have groups of armed guys fighting over territory, fighting over roads, fighting over villages, hitting each other's guys, driving in in convoys and spraying and throwing grenades. You have, you have this kind of thing happening in parts of Mexico still, and this kind of thing goes on. Imagine for a lot of these guys, you know, they, they can do what they want. They, you know, they don't have to really obey by lockdowns. They can still drive around, carrying on and you know, doing what they're doing. Some places they're like laying low, perhaps kind of because there's less movement, but other places... Cartels are fighting to gain economic advantage over their rivals, and COVID is going to damage economies around the world significantly. Some saying that the impact could be worse than the 2008 world financial crash. How do you think this will impact the cartels and their ability to smuggle drugs? Yeah, so I think I think that COVID-19 crisis is hitting and going to hit cartels massively in terms of their income. Here in Mexico, there's way less traffic over the border, which means it's harder to smuggle drugs. There's way less opportunities to sell drugs in the United States and people taking drugs. There's no nightclubs, no bars, no parties. It's harder for people to sell drugs on the street. I'm sure they still are selling drugs on the street 
in certain corners of the United States. I mean, you know, you go to those places like Baltimore, Maryland, and people selling drugs very openly. I'm sure they're still kind of corners, but maybe less openly than before. Whereas before they're really open, now they're kind of pushed back a bit into the projects or pushed back a bit, you know, into, into kind of not as, as openly on the street as, as, as normal. So way less consumption of drugs, less opportunity to smuggle, supply lines hit of taking raw ingredients, precursor ingredients from China. You know, it turns out Wuhan is one of the big producers of fentanyl in the world. So that, you know, holdups in the production of precursor ingredients and ingredients for uh, and production of these things. So, so for a whole bunch of reasons, you've got like the drug production, drug distribution hit. So that's going to really hit the cartels. You've also got, you know, the cartels in Mexico are not, only drug cartels anymore they're crime cartels with diverse portfolios of illegal businesses which include stealing oil from pipelines uh, include human smuggling as in taxing the money paid by migrants who are paying coyotes to take them over the border which include the sex industry and running or taxing brothels prostitution which include product piracy, which include extortion, include kidnapping. Now, many of these businesses are going to be hit by COVID-19. It's harder to shake down businesses that are not open. Like if they get money getting paid from nightclubs and the nightclub's not open. The oil has collapsed. No one's buying petrol to drive around in cars anymore and the price of oil has gone right down. So yeah, Cartel is going to be hit really hard economically, and that's concerning because you know when they're hit in their pockets, then they look for other ways to get money, which are very easy and involve violence, like kidnapping, robbery, that kind of thing. I realise this might be a speculative question, but how much is the cocaine trade worth to the cartels? Yeah, there's, there's no good numbers for this. One is this Rand study, which is done commissioned by the White House. What Americans spend on illegal drugs. And I don't think it's, it's great science, but it does provide numbers. And that they had, I think, more recently, they looked at around the American illegal drug market is worth $150 billion a year. Now, actually, most of that money probably does stay in the United States because the biggest markup is at a street level. If you look at cocaine, you have all these links in the chain. It's like, you know, the way the drug industry works and everyone's marking up. People who sell cocaine in the US, you know, will often, you know, like somebody who might buy cocaine paying $40 a gram and selling it for $100 a gram, as an example. So that $60 is made by that dealer on the street. The That mid-level dealer who's selling him quantities where, you know, he's selling it for $40 a gram, but he's selling it in big quantities. He's still also inside the United States. So they reckon with cocaine, the cartels might sell it and this is a price that's been stable for some years, for about $30,000 a kilo. Now, the Mexicans are making a lot. The Mexicans are actually making more than the Colombians. Because the Colombians sell this for a couple, about $2,000 a kilo. And the Mexicans sell it about $30,000. So the Mexicans are making the big amount of money. Now, there's one, uh, a DEA agent who, who gave me this very nice metaphor about this. The Mexican cartels, in that sense, are like Walmart, and the Colombian cartels are like Colgate. Who's really running it is the distributors. It's not the makers. 
Colgate, they make toothpaste, but they basically have the mercy of Walmart. The big money maker is Walmart, the, the big distributor. And they're the ones who call the shots. But yeah, but it's a crazy. I mean, that's a, that's a markup, $2,000 to $30,000. I mean, that's a markup, which is, you know, it's a lot more than Walmart's getting out of Colgate. Do you think that the economic damage caused by COVID might push more people into the hands of the cartels? Absolutely. When you have like very poor prospects and when you have recessions and people being deported and these kind of things have always fed a lot of workforce to the cartels. I mean, one of the reasons the cartels are so powerful in Mexico is they have so many people coming to them wanting to work. So that's why you have, you know, hitmen you can hire sometimes for $100 a week, you know, paying someone to go and murder people. The market for, for hitmen is crazy in Latin America. I mean, it's, it's an insane thing that, you know, if you want to kill somebody in the UK, there are hitmen you might be able to find in the UK, but it's going to be expensive. You know, not that many people because there's a good chance you're going to get caught and go to prison and, you know, some of them would be, be a lot of money or in the US. But here in, in Mexico, it's just like dirt cheap market for hitmen, for people who do a bunch of other jobs for cartels. And, and you've got more people pushed into them. One thing about that is, is because already you've got like a, such a kind of big market for cartels, there's a limit to how many people they can actually hire. If they're not making money, then even though they've got plenty of people who will say, you know, I'll work for you. You know, want me to smuggle drugs? You want me to kill somebody? You want me to grow drugs? You want me to work in a lab? You want me to carry oil? You want me? You want me to go and help people get over the border? You know, all of these things. You've already got a lot of people doing those jobs, and so so there's a limit to what they can do. But yeah, absolutely. And one of the one of the times of big growth of the cartels in Mexico was in in the 1990s, and that followed a big recession in Mexico then, which was the 1994 to 95 peso crisis sometimes called the tequila crisis. That was Yoan Grillo, journalist and author of El Narco, Inside Mexico's Criminal Insurgency and Gangster Warlords, Drug Dollars, Killing Fields and the New Politics of Latin America. So we've heard that drug trafficking cartels are no longer just that. Since the days of Pablo Escobar and Felix Gallardo, specifically narco-traffickers are on the decline. Modern cartels have significantly diversified their criminal portfolios, extortion, kidnapping, human smuggling, human trafficking, counterfeit medicines, fuel theft, illegal logging, alongside drug trafficking. Many of those issues that we've already discussed in previous podcasts. But drug trafficking is still worth tens of billions of US dollars every year to the cartels. But with the major disruption due to coronavirus, will the cartels see this uncertainty as an opportunity and be able to adapt? Deborah Bonello is a freelance journalist and investigative reporter based in Mexico who focuses on organised crime in the drug trade and one of the authors of the Insight Crime and Global Initiative report, A Criminal Culture, Extortion in Central America. I mean, there's no doubt that they'll adapt. And I think price hikes will probably be one of those factors. I think as it becomes harder to move drugs across the border that's going to create a scarcity in the United States. And, you know, it's basic capitalism that will push up the street prices of everything and it will push up the prices of bribing officials to get that stuff across the border in the first place, contracting the lorry drivers and transportistas, as they call them, to help facilitate that movement. Everything becomes more expensive as it becomes more difficult 
But yeah, I think the cartels are adapting to that by raising prices across the border. You know, border cities like Tijuana, which is one of the most violent cities in the world. Most of that violence has been attributed to the disputes over the meth market, for example, and how the city is divided up, street level drug sales. I was there about six months ago, reporting on the consumption of fentanyl in Tijuana, which is growing. So there has been a creation of new drug markets, especially in the border cities amongst, you know, hardcore users, heroin, heroin users. So I do think you will see the cartels adapt. I think they will try and exploit local drug consumption markets on this side of the border as those in the U.S. become a little harder to get to. And also, you'll probably see them doubling down on other criminal activities that are good earners for them, such as extortion, which is a very sort of has a very low barrier to entry. It's a very easy criminal market to run. So I, I don't think this will send any of the cartels out of business whatsoever. It's probably creating new black markets in terms of products that are difficult to get hold of in certain countries and on the Mexican border, people can't go over to the U.S. and buy things. That might generate business opportunities for the cartels south of the border. I mean, they're very agile. And I mean, I remember with the fentanyl crisis, they were onto that way before the DEA was really hip to what was happening. They're very, very agile and uh, they recognize commercial opportunities pretty much as soon as they present themselves. So I don't doubt that they'll be doing the same in this context. But, you know, the drug trade is, is one of the oldest in the world. I don't think demand for that is going to go away. And arguably, there may be a boom once this is all over, as people start partying again, they start socializing again. You know, demand for cocaine is going to surge. Demand for meth may surge as people go back to work in Mexico. I don't think the coronavirus long term is going to have much of an impact on society's appetite for recreational drug use. That was Deborah Bonello, freelance journalist and investigative reporter based in Mexico. You can read Deborah's report, A Criminal Culture Extortion in Central America, and follow her on Twitter at Mexico Reporter. And finally, drug trafficking criminal organizations are nothing if not adaptable. So let's take a few minutes to look at how similar crises in the past have impacted drug trafficking. Granted, right now we're living through unprecedented times, but huge disruptions have happened before. For example, in 1995, the temporary elimination of the meth precursor supplied to the US. In the year 2001, the Taliban banned the growing of opium poppies in Afghanistan, leading to a global heroin shortage the following year. And of course, the financial crash in 2008 and the Great Recession that followed, resulting in demand reduction in Western countries. Then in 2010, a fungal epidemic destroyed half of the Afghan opium poppy crop, once again leading to a global shortage of heroin. Situations like these forced illicit drug organisations to adapt and evolve their businesses. So in the short term, how does the disruption caused by COVID impact the price and quality of drugs? Jason Eli is a senior expert with the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime and the author of an upcoming report on the impacts of the global coronavirus pandemic on illicit drug markets. The price itself is often fluctuates in local markets during times of crises because... For example, in, in 2001, when the opium crop in Afghanistan was significantly lower than previous years as a result of a decision by the government to eliminate poppies, this led to a significant decrease in the supply and availability of heroin in many markets around the world. And this reduction in supply 
drove up prices in, in many locations and reduced the availability, obviously, of, of heroin in those locations. So there were significant shortages for some period of time. But we've got to also remember that drug markets themselves don't necessarily operate by the same economic rules that other licit markets do. These are markets in which price is often manipulated, uh, in many cases for financial gain by those who control the markets. And the products themselves are also manipulated either by decreasing the purity of the drugs involved, thereby increasing the volume available for dealers to, to sell, or um, finding other means of manipulating the market, including artificially uh, reducing supply in, in different areas. COVID is impacting all regions of the world. It's a global pandemic after all. Do you think things will be different this time around? We've never seen a crisis like this in living memory. And at the same time, we're not in a position to definitively determine how organized drug trafficking groups will adapt around the world because there are so many different kinds of groups. There are so many different kinds of situations. I do think that it's a good time, it's an opportune time to be an organized trafficking group. And I do think that it is a time that's ripe for exploitation, perhaps at a grander scale than some of the other historical crises. Container shipping traffic has decreased, yes, but it's not been eliminated. Rail traffic in many cases has increased. Borders are closed, but I think the image that we get when we close our eyes and we ponder on, on those words is maybe that of a wall at the border, guards standing and keeping people out. But that's not what's happening. Borders are closed, yes, but borders are still open. Traffic is continuing. And traffic around essential services in particular is prioritized. The definition of essential goods and essential services is different across all of the countries. And it's a significant entry point for uh, border crossings around the world of all those countries where their markets have been closed. So if you're a drug trafficking organization, this is perhaps an opportune time to think about business expansion, to think about increasing your supply, to think about pumping more drugs into markets. And have we seen a significant downturn due to the disruption in the supply chain? I think the situation is more aligned to an element of the manipulation of the perception of scarcity by organized criminal groups of narcotics and local markets than it is, in fact, evidence of actual shortages of supply. There is no shortage of illicit drug supply in the world today. There may be some temporary difficulties in moving products through the supply chain, but these are largely insignificant and are not unlike the difficulties that these groups face on a regular basis when law enforcement is particularly vigilant. So marketplaces are not suffering shortages of their illicit drugs. Are we seeing an impact on the operational capabilities of law enforcement during this pandemic? Still, we have little understanding of what percentage of the actual flow 
that is coming into a country is impacted by interdiction measures. So if we make a seizure of several hundred kilos of cocaine, for example, what uh, impact does that have on the overall flow of cocaine into the country? Or do these organizations account for the fact that they're going to lose X percentage of their product? It's probably the latter is, is more likely. Uh, if we look at uh, North Africa, we're seeing a lot more movement of cocaine in particular from landing points in the West, uh, Guinea-Bissau, for example, and uh, moving across the North in preparation for shipment into uh, European markets. So the volume of flow in other markets is, is increasing. It's possible that the same thing is happening at the uh, U.S.-Mexican border. And also we need to remember that by their nature, drug trafficking organizations don't necessarily use formal border crossing points. But a lot of their, their shipments, particularly the higher volume ones, go through other means. In the U.S., there are obviously narco tunnels. Uh, that have been used in the past and have been quite successful. There's been the evolving use of so-called narco-subs that uh, not only have been used on the Pacific coast to bring volumes of uh, cocaine and, and methamphetamine into the market, but also now they're crossing the Atlantic and appearing off the coast of Europe. So it's a situation where as these drug organizations come through the crisis and find ways of, of trying to exploit opportunities that perhaps they perceive as emerging. I think it's fair to say that law enforcement also tries to evolve and exploit intelligence and potential opportunities that they see emerging in, in such situations. The, the difference is the, the speed with which such adaptations occur. That was Jason Eli, a senior expert with the GI and the author of an upcoming report on the impacts of the global coronavirus pandemic on illicit drug markets. A special thank you to Toby Muse, whose book Kilos, Life and Death Inside the Secret World of the Cocaine Cartels is available now. Deborah Bonello and Jason Eli, and finally to Yoan Grillo, author of Gangster Warlords and also El Narco, a personal favourite of mine. That's all we've got time for on the show today. Remember that part two of our in-depth look at the global cocaine trade and the impact of the coronavirus will be out in the next few days. We'll follow the drug from the shores of South America to West Africa and into Europe, where the supply is controlled by one of the most powerful organised criminal networks of them all, the Drangheta from Calabria in Italy. Remember that you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter about coronavirus and organised crime by heading over to our website, which is www.globalinitiative.net. Don't forget that you can find the GI on social media by searching for The Global Initiative. Please leave us a review, like, subscribe and share the podcast around. Next week, we'll be bringing you part two of cocaine trafficking. So until next time, I'm Jack Megan Vickers. Carry on. <laughs>